how do you greet someone? How do you say hello? Like if you are in a grocery store and you see someone, what do you do? Now, I realize that many of you go into evade maneuvers when you see someone in the grocery store, countermeasures of avoidance, but if you aren't doing that, how do you greet them? If you see a dear friend, what does that greeting of that dear friend look like versus maybe your neighbor who maybe you aren't as close to or an acquaintance or maybe one of your colleagues that you work with? How do you greet them? How do you say hello? Is it a handshake or a hug, a fist bump in the time of COVID? That's the typical way. How do you say hello? Maybe to a stranger, someone who comes up to you and says hello to you that you don't know or don't recognize. How do you respond? Or maybe to that person that you're friends with on Facebook, but you've never met in real life, and then you see them out in the real world. What do you do? How do you say hello? Do you make eye contact? Is there that moment of reciprocation where you're then invited into by that eye contact, by a turning of a face towards you that says it's okay to interact, it's okay to greet, it's okay to say hello? Now, additionally, not only is greeting a part of this, but how do you commend someone to someone else? How do you introduce a friend to a friend, a colleague to a neighbor? How do you network? Are you active or passive? Which would describe you? Someone who is the networker, who's making the connections, or someone who kind of waits for someone else to do that to you? Now, the big question this morning that I want you to think about is, do you make room for other people? That's what hospitality is, by by the way. It's making room for another person into your life. Christine Pohl is a writer. She says hospitality is this act of making room. In offering hospitality, practitioners lie between the vision of God's kingdom in which there is enough. Even abundance, she says. The hard realities of human life in which doors are often closed and locked and some needy people are turned away or left outside. A door open or closed is one of the most powerful images of hospitality. Do you make room? And if not, what keeps you from making room? Maybe your life is too full or you feel like your life is too full. I know I'm not always the best person to give this sermon because for whatever reason, God has given me a very high capacity for friends and people. And some of you are like this. There's always seems to be room for one more person in your life. My wife and kids are often like, like really dad, another friend, another Facebook friend, another friend out in the real world. I know some of you, most of you, in fact, don't have this ability. And it isn't because your life is loaded down. Sometimes it's full of things that seems like making room for another is impossible. But sometimes it's just who you are. Now, here we come to Romans 16. And it emphasizes to us that Paul has a table. And that Paul has made room around it. And the very fact that this Roman church to which he is writing exists 
as a particular church in the world is because of Paul, and at least in one sense, his hospitality, his making room. And what I want you to see this morning through these list of names is that chain. Because there is a chain. There is a network. Why are you here today? Now think about this for a second. What are or who are the chain of people that got you to this place? Now run it down in your head. Like why are you in this city and in this particular church, at this particular time, who got you here? Now, maybe there's someone who invited you. There's a direct link in that chain. But that chain is much, much longer. There are people in your life who either told you the story of Jesus, who emphasized to you what it looks like to be a part of a church, to join it, to be a member There is a network of churches in this country, in this world, that brought you to this particular one on this particular day in this moment of time. Why are you here? You're here because someone made room for you. Around a table, perhaps. Around this table, for sure. The person who invited you is part of that, but it's much bigger than that. And it started with a greeting. Like, I want you to know that. Like, the reason you're here is because it started with a greeting. A simple act of making room. Paul, in Romans 16, has a list for the letter to the Church of Rome. And it starts around a table. It actually isn't his table, but Gaius's table. Now, much of this this morning comes from Andy Crouch's excellent book, but Gaius's table is not in Rome, but in Corinth. The city of Corinth was a wealthy Greek city. After the conquest and elimination of the native population by the Roman armies in the second century BC, it was designated as a colony dedicated to the worship of its benefactor, Julius Caesar. One of its citizens is a man named Gaius. We meet him this one time in Scripture in Romans 16. Gaius, who is host to me, Paul says, and to the whole church, he greets you. Here we're given a view of how Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now don't miss this, because you, you come to this and you think, man, it's just a list of names, but it's not just a list of names. It's telling a story of the church during this particular time, in the empire of Rome. And how did Christianity spread? Around a table, in a home. Gaius has a guest, Erastus, the treasurer of the city of Corinth. This, like our day, was how things would get done, gifts and favors around a table. But Gaius and Erastus aren't the only guests. And this is where we see what the gospel does in the world. For there is another one that sends greetings to the church of Rome. He is actually the one who's doing the writing down of the names, and his name is Tertius. Tertius in Latin is third, right between secundus and cortus, second, third, fourth. We moved uh, my daughter, Jaden, into Lobo Village. We picked her name because we loved it. And thought it, was, uh, thought it was pretty. Turns out it was also at that time very trendy. 
Jaden has a love-hate relationship with her name. Jaden, what if we changed you to just Tertius? <laughs> Third, Trey, Trip. See, the name Tertius tells a story. Tertius is an additional son in a world where the firstborn is the one that only mattered. Tertius is a scribe, a secretary. Most likely, he was a slave or is a slave. He's a hired hand. I hired some guys this week to put together a gazebo, and I've thought about the privilege embedded in such an activity. Tertius's job was to take down in fair hand the words of free men. Andy Crouch says the Romans were practical people. The only son who really mattered was the firstborn son, and the sons of slaves didn't matter much at all. The firstborn would take a name related to his father and his family. The other children, especially further down the line, didn't require a name of their own. So, so children born in the third uh, month of the Roman year, or perhaps the third born of the family, would be called, well, third. Number three, of who knows how many. All surplus mouths to feed, to be apprenticed, or sold off once they were grown. This, Tertius, has been for weeks long taking dictation from Paul. In the early times, this Paul, who was one time Saul, would have never entered into Gaius' house. He never would have reclined at his Roman table, for Paul was a Hebrew of a Hebrews. This means he was dedicated to ritual purity, and that demanded segregation from Gentiles. But grace changed him, and it changed the purpose of Paul's life, which is now driven by this grace that's been given to him. 12 verse 3 of Romans. This grace has sent Paul to the nations, to the Gentiles with news, news that the gift of grace wasn't just for him, but it's for you, for you, Gaius, for you, Tertius. Grace given to me, the Jew first, and to you, the Greek second. Grace given to, one, to you once upon, who were once upon a time far off, enemies of God. Grace given unconditioned, not with return expected or returned Demanded, but free. And here, in the house of Gaius, this is what grace looks like. Sitting, reclining at a table, writing a letter to a people Paul has never met, a people who come from very different places, gathered in a home, listening to the letter read. For days, Paul has dictated this letter, starting, stopping, reading, editing, erasing, rewriting. Romans, the penultimate letter of theology in the Bible, perhaps. And Paul comes to the end of this magnanimous work and wants to speak tenderly, pastorally, personally, and he riffs off name after name after name. In our reading, 36 names, the majority of which are Gentiles, but a large group of Jew Jewish Christians as well, most likely representing at least five churches, men and women. Women addressed in this letter, highly unusual for a Greco-Roman letter. And all of these residents of a city, well, not all of them, but most of them, residents of a city where Paul's never even been, greeted with warmth and a personal touch. How does Paul know the names? Well, some we know, like 
Prisca and Achilla. Paul has met with them, suffered with them, served with them. Others he knows secondhand, and he wants them included and wants to share the wide-reaching impact of the gospel that it has and is having in the Roman world, of which they're a part. The way the gospel is the true good news in an empire that's offering an alternative good news. And this good news is shared around a table. I want you to think this morning about your table. What does it look like? Picture it in your mind. Is your table home to good news? Is your table open? Like, is it porous? Do people come in and out of sitting around it? Like, do you make room for others outside of your nuclear family to sit around it? If not, why not? As we come to the end of Romans, the implications of the gift of grace, the implications of justification by faith, the implications of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, of God working all things together for the good, of bodies being offered as living sacrifices, of Jews and Gentiles being reconciled in Christ, of the strong and the weak living out a life of love, is what? The implication of all those things is greetings and a table spread. No longer strangers, slaves, but friends and guests. Picture your table. Who can you, this morning, invite to sit around it? And one of the things I love about this church is the way outsiders and new people and strangers are welcomed. Now, maybe this is because we are a church of outsiders largely to New Mexico. Even though I'm an insider, many of you are not. And I was recounting some of the times this week how many of the tables are opened up in community here. Weekly, many of you make room. And if you are here this morning, and this hasn't been your experience up to this point, as you are around, I think it will be. But I would encourage you to be a part of a city group, a women's Bible study, to go to men's happy hour, so that those things can become a regular experience and part of your life here. At Gaius's table, table, Tertius is writing in shorthand. Imagine Paul stopping speaking, and Tertius looks up, and it's the end of the letter, and Paul says, Tertius, third, three, trip, tray, you should greet them. Perhaps Tertius is from Rome and knows the church, or maybe he's never been outside of the city walls of Corinth. But Tertius sends his greetings And notice, how does he send it? He sends it in the Lord. Here, Paul makes room for Tertius. Number three, like Stranger Things 11, like she was invited in. Tertius is here. And in his greeting, which is unique for a Greco-Roman letter, he becomes co-author with Paul. See that? Paul makes room, expands the circle. Those who are normally anonymous, those who normally are employed just to do a task and take orders, those who normally just arrive without greetings and without being noticed, those who are named three, Paul makes room. Paul sees Tertius. He is Paul's brother, not just a hired hand. Tertius goes on, Gaius, who is host to me, 
and to the whole church greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Tertius is a guest, just like the VIPs. He is the part of the church that meets in Gaius' home. And Cordus is there. Three gives greetings from four, ironically. Could be Tertius' own brother, by the way. And he, too, is a guest at Gaius' table. What Andy Crouch says, these words display the revolutionary effect of the gospel that Paul is preaching. It's a transformation of personhood. Humanity played out in homes around a table, in Gaius's home, in Prisca and Achilla's home, in Rufus's home. And even as we read in Philippians, in the house of Caesar himself, these greetings are happening. What else do we see in these greetings? Well, Paul begins this by saying, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant at the church of Sincera, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and myself as well. Phoebe is the messenger and deliverer of this letter. Delivering a letter would not have been a simple act in the ancient world. Normally, you would send a slave or a servant. You could rely on a Roman network of roads and posted. You could send it through ships or merchants going somewhere. For Christians, they chose a personal approach. Friends and colleagues delivered the letters. They, they all almost assuredly would present the letter, would probably read the letter, and additionally interpret and explain the letter to the church to whom they are reading the letter. And this would have been done several times, as there are many house churches that would make up a network of churches in the Roman suburbs. Phoebe is commended, recommended. She most likely on this trip is a missionary like David or Angela or Josiah or Stephen or Lori or Emma. She is both going and telling and raising support for Paul's journeys to come. And Paul calls the church in Rome to welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the church, for a family of holy ones, set apart ones, saints. She is called a deaconess, a servant a leader of some sort in the church, given the important role of messenger. She is called patron, a benefactor, which means she is a philanthropist, a leader in the community, perhaps even hosting a church in her home. And now she is commissioned to carry this letter to the friends that she most likely has never met. In the ancient world, patronage was important. It was a vital social relationship. There was provision and protection given by these benefactors in exchange for loyalty and service. Phoebe is Paul's benefactor, someone who has provided for Paul resources, a place to stay. She has been a host to him, and she has some financial means. And of course, she's a woman. Women prominent in the early church, vitally involved in the work it does not imply all forms of leadership, but does say their work was significant. From the first witnesses of the resurrection to the first converts of the early church to the first servants and workers in that church, women here in this chapter are praised for their ministry. Phoebe is entrusted with this letter, with scripture. She would explain and read the contents. If someone asked for clarification about justification of faith or the relationship between Jews and Gentiles, Phoebe might be the first to answer. See, Paul sets an example of a vibrant, multifaceted church. And at the heart of this is women who use their gifts and graces to help spread the gospel. 
When it comes to developing and expanding ministry and planting church, churches and doing uh, work like we talked about last week, going to the unreached, women should be commended and empowered to use these gifts in these works. In the PCA, we should be particularly intentional about such things. Because I think out of fear, we do the opposite. We trust that what Paul says elsewhere, that the role of elder and pastor is reserved for men, but out of fear, we add extra biblical things to what women can and can't do in the church. Here at City, we want women to operate out of their gifts and serve the body, and we think women and men who are unordained can fulfill many of the same roles in this body. And at the heart of this, the heart of this is making room, making room in ways the Bible advocates and allows. We also meet Prisca and Achilla. This Greek-speaking Jewish husband and wife team are from Pontus. They were most likely leather workers and tent makers like Paul. They met Paul in Corinth when they themselves were expelled from Rome by Claudius. They accompanied Paul to Ephesus and stayed there. During this time, they met Apollos, a new convert to the faith. They discipled him around a table in their home. Apollos, who at one time will become a colleague of Paul, so much so an apostle to the degree that people in Corinth start deciding whether they should follow Paul or Apollos. He's discipled around a table by Prisca and Achilla. Eventually, Prisca and Achilla make it back to Rome. They're welcome back after being banished. They are described by Paul as co-workers, ministry partners, traveling companions who are involved in the work of church planting and evangelism. They risk their lives for Paul. Literally, the text says they laid down their necks. They put their necks on the line for Paul. And Paul says all the churches in, 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 of, the, uh, of the Gentiles should be grateful for them. Have you ever had someone stick out their neck for you, helped you in a pinch, in a serious moment, recommended you when you needed recommendation or perhaps when you didn't deserve it, they recommended you? Have you had someone sacrifice for you or have you done it for someone else? I have had so many people across the years of my life commend me and I wouldn't be here without their commendation. And I've had the privilege for doing it for others. Prisca and Achilla are such friends. They, are, they probably know how, how Paul knows so much about, they are, they are probably how Paul knows so much about the churches of Rome, even though he's never visited. Epinetus is the first convert in Asia. Imagine the moniker of that. I mean, hello, Asia is a big place, right? With lots of people. Epinetus is the first convert, the first Christian in Asia. Mary is a Jewish woman who has worked hard for the church in Rome, as are Trophina and Trophosa. In verse 7, we meet Adronicus and Junia. They are commended for being in prison with Paul, believers before Paul was, outstanding, they says, among the, uh, the apostles. Junia most likely uh, was a woman. She, along with Herodian and Lucius and Jason and Sophocer, are most likely fellow Jews. She's a fellow prisoner, along with Adronicus. 
And she and Andronicus were well known to the apostles. There's, there's much debate about this translation, but I think we can see that these two were delegates under the apostles, sent out like Titus or Epaphroditus. And here we get a sense of how Paul would work. He would begin a work, and then he would pass it over to one of his disciples or colleagues who would continue the work. He would send some of those people out. That's what Andronicus and Junia are, as church planters. And their work, we're told, is fruitful. They planted many churches. And Pleiotus, Urbanus, Stachus, Apelles are all dear friends to Paul. Apelles is one tested in Christ. We see two prominent households, Aristopulus and Narcissus. Aristopulus was the grandson of Herod the Great. It was a prominent, prominent Jewish household in Rome. Narcissus was a Roman freeman who was prominent under Claudius and later was forced to end his life by his rivals. His household was converted, probably hosted a church. Herodian was a fellow Jew and a former slave. Tryphenia and Tryphosa and Persis are women known for their service and dedication in the church. Rufus is mentioned by Mark. He's the son of Simon the Cyrene. His mother was a friend of Paul's mother. Rufus was most likely a leader in this Roman church, hosted the Roman church. And as we inch towards the end of the greetings, Paul denotes two distinct households. One household consisting of Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, in addition to the other brothers and sisters with them. And the other household comprising of Philogagus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister Olympias who are together with all the Lord's people. One feels that Paul is going through his like mental Rolodex, trying to greet as many people in Rome as he can possibly remember. And then Timothy, his beloved disciple, and those around Gaius' table. This letter, written by Tertius, carried by Phoebe, delivered to Prisca and Achilla and Rufus and others. Why? Because they're Paul's friends, his companions. Paul has spent months with them, gathering in their homes, leading in their churches, eating meals around their tables. They are part of Paul's network. Friends, I frequently have friends come here. I share this pulpit with them. I have them spend time with you and with me. I will go to my friends' churches and do the same. Why? Because through this, you get a glimpse of the wide nature of the church. and What God is doing in other parts in places of our little denomination. You get to hear it from them because they are very dear to me. This week I was reminded that Dot and Andrew Stewart, who are a part of our church, moved uh, from here to Salt Lake. Uh, Andrew had a job with the U.S. speed skating team there. They had a difficult time connecting uh, in Salt Lake, partly due to job, partly due to culture. They were never quite uh, fond of their, uh, never quite found their bearings there in the church. But when they told me they were moving to Lincoln, Nebraska, I quickly commended to them my friend Matt Odom, who's been here. Matt met with them the first week. Matt visited them in their home. Matt's from the South. Dot and Andrew are from the South. And Matt said to me, man, they loved City Press. It had such an impact on them. And then he says, they remind me of the South. And that's one of the many benefits of networking. Whenever anyone from city moves to another place, I try to commend to them a church and hopefully a friend, whether it's the Butsons, 
the Leslies, the Jones, the Kirks, the Howards. We pray for them. We send them out. We offer commendation both to them and to the church. And in doing this, there is a network of friends and relationships and a belief that we are expanding the network in sending and commending. Greet one another, Paul says, with a holy kiss. The holy kiss was by the time of Justin Martyr in the mid-century a part of the church's liturgy. After prayers, greetings would happen. The kiss, the way the early church sought to make room for everyone. It was a way to end grievances and jealousy. A way to greet one another and pass the peace. And we don't kiss here. Maybe you're happy about that. Maybe you're sad. But we greet. Josh Collins loves it. It's his favorite part in the service. If you ever want to know... Like during green time, find Josh. He's right there in the middle. He just got a haircut, big haircut, looking good, Josh. Say hello to him. Greet him. He loves the greeting time. What do you do during greeting time? Who do you avoid? Where do you run? Are you a receiver? Are you a giver? Are you like Paul, networking and making connections for people here? The kiss, the handshake, the hug, the fist pump is part of being the church. Because the church is known as the body of Christ. The body of the Messiah, the anointed one. This means the church is to be Jesus' presence in the world. In Corinth, Paul, Phoebe, Gaius, Tertius were members, members of the body. Arms, legs, organs. That is a member a member of the body of Messiah. Remember a few weeks ago, the gospel came to the Jew and then the Greek. Why? Because the gospel is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. And this is what I said a few weeks ago. God's purpose is that God rescues Israel from exile by preserving a remnant and then rallying nations around it. The Messiah invites Gentiles into this new kingdom. Remember, this is said in the face of the empire of Rome who is attempting to offer such a promise to the peoples of the world. Our world offers similar promises of belonging and knowing. But it's often through subjugation and force and violence. The church offers welcome, greeting, and making room. Not in those met ways, but by violence done to self. That awkwardness that Josh talked about as we began this morning that we feel, that you feel, that I feel, that is the pill we swallow in making room. It is the small death we die to invite others to our table. And it's a beautiful thing. It's beautiful, right? Like, I think about the Breidenbox coming back from Eastern Europe with three new family members, three daughters, as David said last week. I think about them selling their house And moving into another house. Why? To make room. That's what it looks like. Your little, like, awkward, like, Sunday morning Josh Collins, I don't want anybody to say hello to me kind of thing. By the way, Josh is, like, the best at this. He really, he does do this. Dies to himself. But, like, that's a small way to make room for somebody, friends. I really want you to see that that is this aim of Romans 16 the long line, the golden chain of people. We talked a few weeks ago about this this image of strong and weak together with arms linked around the Lord. As we head into communion this morning, like that is the picture I want to leave you with. Like 
The Lord makes room for you around the table, and you're going to gather with friends, acquaintances, strangers around this little table, and you're going to be fed. But the image is us locking arms together with the people here, but all those people that brought you here. And there's going to be a history of all the people that you touch and make room for that are going to be around this table years after you're gone. We are. We are around this table because of Gaius' table. That's why we're here. Someone made room for Gaius. Gaius made room for Tertius. The letters sent to Rome, the church in Rome made room. And the gospel spreads and spreads in those ways through awkward hellos and greetings and deep, long-lasting friendship. So please, friends, follow the way of Jesus and make room. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would uh, remind us that this table is a table open spread. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, we are invited into it. All of us who were once enemies and far off, the Bible says, are brought near by the blood of Jesus and his body. And so as we imbibe that this morning, I pray that that would be our understanding and practice, that we would internalize this very real thing that's happening spiritually around these tables. You make us one from the one cup and one bread. You make us one from all the different peoples of the world, all the different ethno-linguistic people groups. We are here because someone made room for us. Because you made room for us. So I pray that we would receive your hospitality this morning and come and dine with you and that we would then be a people who makes room for others so that others can come and dine with you. We ask this in the name of God, our Father and Savior. Amen.